Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a novelist with us today, Jen LaGreca. She writes novels with innovative plots, strong romance, and themes that celebrate individual freedom and independence. She also writes social and political commentaries, which have appeared in Forbes, The Daily Caller, Real Clear Markets, and other publications. Jen, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Doug, for having me. I really enjoyed your book. Your, your most recent book for 2020 is called Just the Truth. And as many of our listeners are probably interested in, we're interested in the truth and we're interested in hearing what's really going on. We want accuracy in reporting and journalism. And so I am pleased to report that your book sort of tackles those issues, but it does so with by doing it in fiction. So I want to hear why you chose to write this about this topic on fiction. But before we do that, do you want to give us a little bit of like, how did you get into writing? What's some of your backstory and experience? Well, it's interesting, Doug. I started out as a pharmaceutical chemist, and then I liked uh, human issues more than chemical issues. And I still like the business world. So I ended up going into management consulting, and I was writing video scripts for management programs, for employee training programs. And uh, one of my clients was a national restaurant magazine, and I was writing uh, scripts for sanitation. And they were getting more and more plot oriented. And so finally, my client said to me, Jen, I just can't have romance in this video about restaurant sanitation. (laughs) (laughs) So I told that story to a friend and she suggested I try writing novels. And I had already read Ayn Rand's epic novels, which impressed me greatly with the tremendous ideas that she was projecting through plots and characters. And with my own inclinations and interests going that way, I decided I'd try a novel and I've written four now and haven't looked back since. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah, I found my passion. Yeah. So Ayn Rand is clearly inspired when you read it. Although I, I will say to our readers, it doesn't take as long to read this book as it takes to read a Ayn Rand novel. <laughs> 200 <laughs> <Which> is, pages. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's certainly a plus. <laughs> but the stories are no less complex and nuanced. So the, the, the plot and the narratives are very uh, intertwined with a lot of different things. So there's a lot to talk about with themes in your book. And clearly, we don't want to you know, spoil anything. But what's mm-hmm. the general like, hey, what, what's the topic? What is the, the context in the story? It's really a story about how a dogged newswoman struggles to preserve and protect and to pursue truth, justice, and freedom of the press. And through a murder mystery and a political thriller, which is nonpartisan, it doesn't mention any political parties or actual people, and so it applies to everyone and reaches out to everyone. It explores the threats to a free press in an era of big and growing government and the partisan groups that support that. And one newswoman stands up to all of it. Yeah, I mean, the, the main character, her name is Laura, and she reminds me of some of the characters in Ayn Rand's novels who 
are just they they can't stomach people giving in to their own their own or even her own morals, ethics, and sort of statements of truth. And you know, mm-hmm. she she challenges them in a number of ways, in a variety of ways, and they challenge her. But she just she just can't stomach it. And I think that for a lot of us, that's what we resonate with. People who do want to defend liberty, it's like, well, do you or don't you want to defend it? You yeah. know, it's like, is this mm-hmm. not worth fighting for? And I found it very creative. Well, not creative, although it is that. I found it very accurate that the characters that you wrote that battled against Laura, the main character, yes, they were, <laughs> they were definitely like, hey, here's why we're fighting against you. And it's just like right out of the pages of today's news, kind of, even though to some extent you didn't, it's like you predicted that this would be the sort of rationale that people would have. Yes. You know, I outlined it five years ago before we had terms like fake news and deep state in our vocabulary. And a number of us saw the troubling trends that were coming. And I decided to express it through fiction. I, I had an earlier novel, Noble Vision, which was a medical story, and it and people said it was about Obamacare. I had written and published it before Obamacare. So I had predicted that. You know, we can see trends, troubling trends, uh, but I decided to use the power and drama and enchantment of fiction to express what I was thinking was coming next. And it's amazing how predictive it was, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was shocked about every chapter or two. It's like, wait, I know you didn't write this in 2020 or even right. even in 2019. Like, I'm sure you were wrapping things up, but like, <laughs> this is just this is too too weird. Especially since like some of the things that we're actually fighting in late 2020. So we're recording this in uh, early September 2020. Like, just recently, we're dealing with a national issue that you you wrote the outlines of five years ago. Yes. And it's a very specific one. I won't I won't spill it. If you want to, you can tell sure. what that issue is. But uh it's like, wait, what? <laughs> this, I don't know. I was just amazed at the 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 predictive quality of it. And I don't know whether to be impressed or just really, really terrified. <laughs> well, uh, I can I can say a little about it if you would let me. Uh, oh, sure, sure. Laura is the head of a national news network and a string of newspapers that were the company was started by her grandfather. And his motto was find the truth wherever it hides. And he taught Laura that journalism is a noble calling. Journalism keeps people in power, especially people in the government who have power over us accountable. Mm -hmm. And it exposes wrongdoings and abuses in power. And that's the great noble calling of journalism, that it safeguards all of our foundational freedoms by holding people in government accountable. And so Laura is on to some suspicious activity that's surrounding a new voting system. The novel takes place at a time when the federal government has uh, taken over uh, the vote counting for an upcoming presidential election in which President Ken Martin hopes to win a second term. And I thought this was outrageous when I wrote it, but there's actually voices today calling for the federal government to take over the election process which would be extremely dangerous. And right now it's totally unconstitutional because that power was given to the states. But you can just batter the states so much. There's election fraud. Minorities are disenfranchised. The poor can't vote. The state's uh, voting is 
filled with problems. So there will be calls for the federal government to take over. Very dangerous. So that's where we uh, start the story. And uh, then she has a source within the administration who's giving her information. And he's suddenly murdered. And everybody's saying it was a random street crime. But she doesn't think so. So she investigates this election possible election rigging and this murder. And so she faces the crushing retaliation of the administration, the president's administration. Part of this happens covertly through government agencies. And we see how more tentacles of government reaching out into more areas harm the free press because they try to harm her family's various businesses that they run. For example, they have a sports team and they all of a sudden find that the sports stadium is out of compliance with an environmental regulation. So they want to shut down the sports stadium and they're, they have a football team that's playing there. So they're wreaking havoc with the family's businesses and putting pressure on the family to get Laura to discontinue her investigation. So is the family going to be pragmatic and take a short-term business advantage uh, to help their businesses, or are they going to be long-range and principled Mm -hmm. and stick up for Laura? So that's a moral issue that runs through the family, and we see that playing out today. It's very scary how many major corporations are caving to political power. Yeah, I think the it's a little scary. Well, it's a lot scary because I think we kind of recognize that, oh, the government has, but I mean, even everyday people who aren't thinking about the issues the way we are, they, they kind of acknowledge the government has all this power, but they probably have like an over enchanted trust in the people yes. there. Oh, they wouldn't do that. Or, oh my goodness, there's so many like things. You just must be crazy. And, oh, that sounds like a conspiracy. And it just, yeah. people kind of write off the kinds of things. Now, clearly you're, you're, setting up this in a, in a fictional context. But these kinds of things do happen. And, you know, journalism is, is there to sort of unveil what's going on. And we see today how that's not really always happening. Right, right. And um, the people who are in power that are possibly manipulating an election and engaged in other very bad activities to destroy this honest journalist... They keep saying that the end justifies the means, and they mm-hmm. they put forth what you're saying. We're just here to help the people. We're trying to do the best we can. And so it's very, very important to elect, re-elect Ken Martin because he stands for the people. And so people buy that, you know, but yeah. the story gets you to think, does the end really justify the means? Can any end justify violating the rights of the citizens yeah. and doing really immoral acts. Can any end justify that? And is the end really noble or is it really about raw power? Yeah. More and more power. And they hide behind a smokescreen and say, well, we're going to benefit the people. It's interesting how phrases in the Constitution also get used as sort of that cloak of, hey, we're doing this for the right reasons because, you know, general welfare or, you know, common good or whatever it might be. I guess general welfare is the clause in the Constitution. And so people on both the left and right will just kind of pick phrases that work for them and say, well, we're doing it for this reason. And you can't come against me because it's in the Constitution. (laughs) I know, I know. And it's how you interpret those things and how you spin it. That's where the term spinning (laughs) comes on. 
But and she has a, a younger sister, Kate, who's her ally in the family, Laura. And Kate is on campus. She's a student and she writes an editorial to defend her sister after her sister is attacked in a campus editorial. Her sister writes an opinion piece and a mob, a campus mob, which the media is saying suddenly and spontaneously these students came out and they try to get her expelled the sister for defending Laura. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole issue of if you're wrong, think. If you're engaged in wrong, think, and you don't follow the thinking of the mob, you're going to be shut down. And the mob is, uh, the ringleaders of it are paid and they have political motives. But we see this uh, acting out in real life where Barry Weiss, the opinion editor at the New York Times, recently resigned, and she resigned very publicly, where she wrote a public letter to the uh, publisher of the New York Times saying that she had forays into wrong think. She was a centrist, and she was bullied by her fellow uh, editors and writers. Her colleagues bullied her, and the publisher did nothing about it. So she talks about how the New York Times is shutting down wrong, what she calls wrong think, and they're just catering to a very narrow audience. And she says Twitter is the new editor at the New York Times. Mm. Can you imagine? So we are actually seeing the suppression and destruction of a free press in America today. It's very scary. Do you, I mean, in your book, you talk about, I mean, we've kind of touched on it here too in this conversation, a little bit about journalism. There's there's sort of two approaches to journalism where you're just dogged pursuit of the facts and the truth and presenting it in as an unbiased a way as possible. And then there's like the other extreme, which is like, you know, human interest stuff where it just it's like, oh, hey, show them something. Show the, show the viewers what's, you know, something nice. Mm-hmm. But what are the, I mean, can you speak to that a little bit? Like, what are the... I should say, internal struggles that journalists would be dealing with, like if they had to take one of two paths. Yeah, well, I think there's a difference between news stories and commentary, you know? So a news story, you are supposed to present the facts, and you can cheat on that in many ways. You can selectively present facts that that as Barry Weiss said, the New York Times editor, the point of view is already preordained, it's predetermined. And the facts you choose fit into that already predetermined point of view. So that's not real journalism. You know, journalism is factual and covering all the facts. But then there is such a thing as having commentary, you know, where you give an opinion. And I would say an opinion from the standpoint of protecting liberty is a very valuable opinion and commentary for a newspaper to have. Mm-hmm. You know, but then there are other commentaries which uh, support socialism and statism, but those should be marked as commentary, you know. So I don't think you can separate a a good newspaper, I think, should have commentary. Yeah. You know, have you had any journalists comment to you on the accuracy or their thoughts on how you portray them? No, no, I haven't. But Barry Weiss is not the only one to resign or be driven out. Her boss was driven out a couple of weeks before because he published an op-ed by Tom Cotton, a uh, Republican senator, Mm, and he lost his job at the New York Times for publishing that. And somebody at the Philadelphia Inquirer, I believe, also lost their job because they published an article that was titled Buildings Matter Too. 
Mm. So, no, no journalist has personally uh, approached me, but my inspiration was actually Cheryl Atkinson. Uh, I don't know if I know who she is. Okay, she wrote two uh, books, one called Smeared, Smeared and the other called, uh, I forget what the other one was called, but I have them, I, I research. I was very carefully reading them very carefully. She used to work for CBS and was driven out because of her unfavorable coverage of Benghazi and Fast and Furious and other Mm. scandals of the Obama administration. And she was driven out of her job and she's independent now. Her motto is nonpartisan and fiercely independent and uh, the truth above all else. She has a motto like that on her website. Okay. So she was the inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, it it is pretty sad that on the one hand, people are sort of justifying their ends by saying, well, we have a higher cause. Like we yes. always kind of justify things by saying, well, mm-hmm. you know, we're just, we're going to limp along this way. We have to sacrifice a few small principles here because there's a bigger principle at stake and that's, you know, X, mm-hmm. Y, or Z. There's this justice that we have to serve or, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, people are losing trust in the media. They're losing, I mean, even, I mean, I know a lot of conservatives have lost trust in the media since at least the 80s and 90s. And, you know, you saw the rise of Fox News. And now even then people are starting to wonder whether or not they're even legitimately reporting, you know, the news and and sort of realizing that they're also biased and slanted as well, even in the reporting part. That's true. That's true. So their reputation is really going down. I'm glad the public is seeing it. But the media, the mainstream media has really very, very sadly been overrun by socialist, statist, bash America, bash capitalism, and Mm. in effect, bash Western civilization by these ideas which are coming out of the educational system, which... uh, you know, has been overrun by these ideas. And uh, then those people graduate from school and they become in the media because they're in the humanities, you know, whereas the sciences perhaps are still very objective and logical and factual. The uh, humanities are really uh, in decline. You know, so uh, the problem is, though, that statism destroys our free minds. It destroys the free press, free expression. It cuts our relationship to truth, facts, and reality and requires our loyalty only to the people in power. So, you know, that's nihilistic. That's what statism, socialism does. So we're in danger with our free inquiring mind and free expression and free will. And there was a recent uh, Cato Pew Research study that showed that 62% of Americans are afraid to voice their free uh, expression, free viewpoints, and that includes 77% of conservatives. So this is really scary. And I would say the cause of it is these nihilistic ideas that are very self-destructive to America, to Western civilization, to our long traditions. What do you think it would take for the press or any particular major news institution to regain the trust of of the American people? I think if they see that they're losing, they're losing readership, they're losing popularity, we see it happening. It's happening more subtly, more uh, slowly than we would like. But Fox News now, I, I think they are now out, out uh, ratings. Their rank ratings are higher even than the network's. You know, CBS, mm. NBC, their ratings are even higher than the networks for certain nights, like the Republican National Convention, et cetera. Right. 
major uh, political speeches. And so I think it's happening slowly. But yeah, uh, I think it takes a big smackdown of anything and everything socialist in America. It's going to take a big smackdown by the public. Yeah, well, they definitely need to reject it for sure, for sure. One of the ways that the public gets to speak is voting, and that is actually some sort of a topic, the main topic of the book is the security of voting and the reliability. And that's been something in the news lately as to like, you know, know. The voting machines getting hacked. What's the U.S. Postal Service going to play? A, how's they, how are they going to play a role? What do, you, what do you have to say about those things? Well, I think as government gets bigger, the corruption takes it, it has to fall into two major areas and it always has where there's a suppression of the press in America it's happening through their partisan friendly media but in other countries like Soviet Russia in China in North Korea and Venezuela the government just outrightly censors the press and imprisons political enemies you can't do that here in America not yet thank God, so Mm. far. But it's done through the partisan groups. And the other thing they have to do is finagle the elections because they can't win. The the people turn against them. So anyone that's willing to win on a rigged election threatens all of our foundational freedoms because they are denying the will of the people and they'll deny their uh, rights in every aspect. So election fraud is a really, really big thing. And we see that happening where Putin and Xi and China have elected, they've modified their constitution so that they can somehow legally serve for life. Mm. So election fraud is a big, big part of statism. And, uh, oh, I'm getting myself scared now. Yeah, well, I was just about to say, I want to ask you what you're working on right now, but I kind of don't want to know, given your track record of predicting what's happening. (laughs) Thank you. But I am working on, you know, the power of fiction to portray and dramatize ideas. And it, it is so powerful, and it's been a big force storytelling throughout time, you know, storytelling in general, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And for example, the Bible is an example of tremendous storytelling. It's not a treatise on morality. It's a collection of uh, very compelling and unforgettable and very enduring stories. And I want to get into projecting the ideas of liberty through storytelling. And uh, I'm uh, going to be involved with plays my play version of Just the Truth. I wrote that, and that's going to be produced here in 2021 in the spring. And I want to even do some uh, classical plays that project Mm. liberty, like uh, William Tell, the story of William Tell, Ibsen's Mm -hmm, Enemy mm -hmm. of the People, and Sophocles' Antigone. And I think that should be brought to a high school audience with educational materials. And so I'm hoping to get involved with an effort like that, because Film is just out of out of reach. You know, it takes, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars for a movie. And mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. did write a screenplay for Noble Vision, my first novel, but couldn't sell it anywhere. You know, and Hollywood is so removed from our values and expressing our values and ideas, which are probably the values and ideas of at least half of America. And so we're underserved. So I'm hoping I can reach through community theater and high school theater through plays, which can be very uh, economical to produce. Yeah. 
Well, and also, you know, for people who are younger, they're they're part of, they're not just reading, they're performing. And exactly. there is something really good about the ritual of performing something. And so there's there's a lot of, you know, like obviously there's going to be, you know, observers to these plays and stuff. But like imagine the the people acting as Laura, the, the, you know, the yeah. young lady who's going to act as Laura and just be part of that rehearsal and the whole production. So yes. you're enlivening people who are who are embodying even if only for pretend, but it's going to make an impact because they're embodying the kinds of characters that we need to see as those who are, you know, committed oh, to yes. truth. And to give them the ideals of journalism. So, and they'll have a heroine that they could look, look toward. Yep, so yep. we need better journalists. So the answer to maybe the journalism we have and getting them back to being better is to really focus on the next generation of journalists coming in. Yeah. No, that's that's really true. I mean, so you have an influence. You want to influence people who would be going into journalism. There's probably, I would say, at least a handful, if not more, of our listeners who are interested in writing, and you might want to speak to them and and give them some like, hey, what does it take to do this well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be great because I would like to also encourage other people to write liberty themed plays. And works, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so that we can influence the culture. You know, Andrew Breitbart famously said, politics is downstream of culture. And, you know, ideas and philosophy are uh, come first, and then we influence the politics. But the ideas and philosophy are really taking over the culture in a bad way. So we've got to get the culture back. And yeah. then maybe we can have more uh, fundamental political change yeah. in a more yeah. fundamental way. So are you optimistic at all about the next decade? Uh, Yeah, I really am, because there are so many good people out there. I mean, America really is the place of the great middle class, and maybe that's why we've resisted uh, communist and socialist influences for so long. Most of us, the vast majority, are not downtrodden, victimized, poor, indigent people that have been ripped off by an elite uh, we're basically the great middle class that capitalism nurtured and created, and we're living a very, very good life. And we're not subject as much to the call of communism to tear everything down. We're mm-hmm. uh, prosperous, you know? So I'm hoping the great middle class in America is going to pull us through. But the Midwest is a place where our values are uh prominent for the most Uh part, uh you know, so it's the two coasts and, you know, these liberal uh, strongholds. So I'm hoping, (laughs) I do, (laughs) I do think there's hope. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, a a lot of room for optimism. I mean, there's, I am inherently an optimist about all these things. And, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, there are things that are like, whoa, you know, and, and I even remember I was talking to a friend, this was probably about seven or eight years ago. And I had yet to read Atlas Shrugged. And he had read it and told me about it. And he's like, yeah, I listened to the audiobook. You know, that was really good. And he told me which, because uh, there's several audiobooks of it out there. And he told me which one. He's like, I really like the narrator. So I finally listened to it. And he told me at the time, he's like, I kind of thought some of the things that she said were a little like out there in terms of like what she thinks happens uh-huh. in the world and in politics. And then like a few years later, he told me, he's like, yeah, I guess she was a little bit right. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, this is how people are thinking nowadays. Now, yeah. you're a, a faster predictor. You you predicted this five years ahead and Ayn Rand took uh, the better half <laughs> of the century. But 
to predict certain things, but no, I'm not throwing her under the no. bus. But anyway, no, I, I'm an optimist, yet at the same time, we need to be cautious and we need yeah. to be on guard for the truth to be obscured and, and masked because that is very often what's happening by the media and by organizations that have an interest in keeping us from the truth. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, we we need to be optimistic and we have we have truth on our side. You know, they where the enemy, the real enemy of socialism is truth. And that's mm-hmm. what they have to hide. And uh, so we have truth on our side. So hopefully, even if we were one tenth the voice out there, that our voice would carry a much bigger weight among thinking people, which you have to assume, hope <laughs> there's enough of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talk about this. I hope readers read your book. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it for Kindle. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, as I mentioned before, it covers a lot of themes that we're familiar with and it does it in a relaxing way. I mean, it's an, it's an intense book. And I have to say, I, I loved how you, I want to say ended the book, but like how, how it climaxed and wrapped up. I was, I was thoroughly uh, enjoying every, every last minute of it. Cause you know, you always wonder like, Oh, this is really good. And you know, you're two thirds of the way through and you're like, how's this going to end? <laughs> and, uh, and I, and I enjoyed it. Oh, if I surprise you, that makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That, yep. That's, that's exactly where you were. So I appreciate you coming on to talk about your book. I hope readers read it. And uh, so thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.